Hi, everyone. Fruit tree grafting is like everyday magic. When we graft fruit trees, we're actually fusing two separate trees together to create a single tree. And if you do this thoughtfully, the resulting tree can have fantastic qualities from each of the component trees. So for instance, let's say you want to grow an apple tree, but you have really heavy clay soil. Well, you can choose a rootstock, that's the lower part of the tree, that can thrive in those conditions. And then you take a clipping from an apple tree and you graft it onto the rootstock. That clipping is called a scion. So if this little combination works, you have now customized yourself an apple tree that is perfect for your unique needs. Now the magic, that happens at the graft union, and that's the area on the trunk where these two distinct parts will meet. And on the show today, I'm going to chat with Dr. Kevin Folta, Professor of Horticultural Sciences at the University of Florida. And we're going to discuss exactly what happens at that graft union and why some fruit trees are compatible while others are not. I'm Susan Poisner, and I'm from the Fruit Tree Care Education website, orchardpeople.com. I'm also the author of a brand new book on Amazon called Fruit Tree Grafting for Everyone. And I believe grafting is a skill that any grower can learn. But before we jump in, I want to celebrate with you guys a little milestone. Did you know that this is our 100th episode, 100 episodes, and I'm celebrating by actually renaming the show. So this show used to be called the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast. And that's for eight years, we called it that. But the thing is that over time, the show has evolved and we focus mostly on fruit trees and food forests. And my listeners are both in urban and rural environments. So what's the new show, show called? You guys ready? Drum roll, please. Okay, there's no drum roll. Oh, is there a drum roll? Yeah, a little bit of a drum roll. Okay, the show is now called Orchard People. That's what it's called. Okay, sorry, it's not that exciting, but that's the name of the show. So the show is called Orchard People. And if you're ever looking for it on um, Apple Podcasts or on your local podcatcher, you'll find it under Orchard People. And that is where it's going to be. Anyways, you can still access all of the older episodes. They will all be under the Orchard People name. Now, what do you think? If you're listening to the show live, I'd love to hear from you. This show is going out right now on realityradio101.com. So just email us right now in studio101 at gmail.com. You can also send in a question on today's topic of grafting. You can send in a comment or I'd love it if you even just email to say hi. That's in studio101 at gmail.com. And of course, we look forward to hearing from you. Okay, finally, let's dig into the topic today. That's fruit tree grafting and compatibility. Kevin Folta, welcome to the show today. Yeah, hi, Susan. Nice to be back. This is great. It's so fun to have you and talking about one of my favorite topics, which is grafting. So can we start off with a basic, quick explanation of what is fruit tree grafting? Can you describe what it is and how it works? Well, you really nailed it down in your introduction. This is... Uh, 
when we're breeding plants, we're combining plants sexually. You're taking pollen from one and combining that with the genetics of another. And here's an example where we're taking two genetic isolates that don't necessarily belong together and fusing them together by combining their uh, uh, vascular uh, and and their their uh, lignification. That so so fixing uh, combining them together using. Uh, uh, connections in plumbing and uh, glue in the wood, putting those things together. It's almost like we're creating a Franken tree, right? Like, you know, you're, you're kind of like taking pieces that shouldn't be together and you're finding a way to stick them together so it works. But is this something that humans have invented, invented or it, does fruit tree grafting actually occur in nature? Yeah, it does. We we actually thought we invented it eight thousand years ago, but uh, there you actually do find examples of fruit tree grafting occurring in nature, where either trees grow together aerially, but you see it frequently in roots, especially with some ficus species and other species that fusions occur underground, allowing different compounds to transmit from one tree to another. It's a form of direct line communication in forests or places where these trees stand. So I'm trying to figure out what the benefit is that for nature. So you've got these roots underground, you know, fig tree number one and fig tree number two, and the roots intersect and they say, hey, let's combine. You know, what's the benefit? Where, where are they getting any benefit out of that? Well, plants have evolved a lot of interesting ways to communicate with each other. So the emission of volatile compounds, other, other ways to, to uh, communicate back and forth that are super cool. We're learning more about it all the time. But that idea of direct transmission of compounds that may have to do with signaling or defense, hormones or small RNA molecules, which we can talk about later, these are all signals that allow trees to talk to one another and uh, maybe doing that through the root system. Pretty cool. Wow, kind of mind blowing in a way to think of that. And even just your the idea of if, for instance, a tree break like uh, breaks a limb, a limb breaks in the wind, is it possible that it would graft itself back onto itself? Maybe? I don't know. No, no, that's that's really what the basis of grafting is, is really this exploitation of a naturally occurring wound healing that occurs. So when a branch breaks, maybe just cracks a little bit. You can imagine between uh, a limb of a tree and, and the rest of the trunk of the tree, just a little crack there that would occur. That thing has some natural uh, desire to kind of go back into place. And the healing will occur because the piece that broke off it's vascular tissues and it's meristematic tissues. So the tissues that give rise to other tissues, the kind of the generic cells that give rise to the other differentiated cells in a plant, those things align. And when they align perfectly, they shake hands across that union and build uh, what's called callus and other tissues that will heal that junction. And uh, very, very cool. So it does happen naturally and we exploit that process for human benefit. Amazing. So we're actually copying what nature showed us is possible. Um, okay, we got a couple of emails already. One is from Steve. Hello, Susan. Wow, welcome back and happy new year. Congratulations on your hundredth. Wow, I never thought anybody would congratulate me on my hundredth. Well, there you go. <laughs> oh, am I really that old? That's interesting. Uh, there's an, also an email from Walt. Congratulations to Susan Poisner and Orchard People. Wow, 100 episodes, a milestone. Good luck with the new format. Great guest today. Thank you so much, Walt. That's wonderful. Um, okay, so now let's think about 
what trees go together. Now, for instance, let's say we have an apple tree, like in my example earlier. Why is it that you can take a clipping from one apple tree, whether it's Honeycrisp or Macintosh, and one of the popular rootstocks, and we can talk a little bit about that later too. And sometimes, sometimes it works easily, and sometimes it doesn't. Are some cultivars pickier than others? More finicky? Ah, hmm, that's a really good question. You know, I don't know a particular uh, interspecies like interspecies tend to be pretty good. So grafting apple onto apple, uh, different cultivars tend to do well with different rootstocks. I'm not really aware of any particular trends within apple, but there are some other uh, other examples which are reasonably close. So uh, the big thing that delineates whether or not a graft is compatible tends to do with taxonomic difference, a distance. And Margaret Fat Frank up at Cornell has done some nice work with grafting um, things like eggplants on tomatoes. You know, you could do that, or maybe, um, you know, eggplants on the tobacco. They kind of study where she wants to look at, where does the, how far can you go before it doesn't work? And what are the elements of uh, incompatibility that you see at that junction? And you study it in tomatoes and, um, and eggplants because those are easier than oak trees. You know, it takes a little time. So, uh, it seems like things like apples to apples, peaches to peaches, all pretty good. But as you start to get a little more out of that taxonomy, it becomes more challenging. Some things aren't such a uh, aren't so difficult. But when you start getting into, um, I'm trying to think of a good example, but I think like peaches and almonds, you know, are are challenging uh, to to, or maybe even impossible to graft together, and you're still very taxonomically close. Interesting. Okay, so that's that's the taxonomy piece. Well, let's. Let's talk about the general factors, what's happening inside that graft union, the general factors that determine the success or failure of our combinations, okay? Give me, I know you told me in our little pre-interview that there are four general factors. Let's, tell me what they are, all four of them. Yeah, we might even have a fifth. So there's quite a few factors that play a role in this. Most of it is the structural alignment. That's a big part of it. And the cambium cells that are the meristematic cells aligning properly. So physical alignment, but also the presence of hormones. Uh, what's happening in terms of the gradients of hormones that are present inside that developing tissue? Uh, there's questions of secondary metabolites. So uh, things that are formed naturally by the plant as part of metabolism, uh, that these can actually be very strong in inhibiting a successful graft union. And then things like uh, small molecules like RNAs and proteins, uh, these uh, molecules which are um, moving throughout the, from the rootstock to the scion and vice versa, that arrive at that graft union and may play a role in how well that graft union heals. That's a that's a big part of it. And the genes that are expressed, you know, what's happening at the molecular biology level at that graft union in response to the stress. Okay. Over that's a good overview. And now let's take it take it apart and understand it. So let's start with the word morphology. Ah. Morphology. Okay. What is morphology and how will that affect whether or not your graft is going to work? Yeah, morphology really just refers to the physical nature of the plant and the position of stuff. And so when we're talking about the morphological features of a graft union, we're looking at how tightly that graft union is made to put cells 
adjacent to other cells, which will form the successful callus bridge. So the what is a uh, cell type that kind of bridges that graft as it cellularizes, as, as it begins to heal within that union, and then expand to develop new vascular tissue. So getting okay. those tissues so into just proximity. Just to dive in. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Just to dive in. We're talking about the jigsaw puzzle. Have we, are, are the two pieces touching? Is that what you're saying? That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Are the pieces, uh, are the pieces in proximity to where the cells can shake hands across that junction? So in other words, if I'm a terrible grafter, which, you know, I am, <laughs> I'm pretty new. And if I don't make my cuts properly, the reason my graft doesn't work is going to be morphology. It it would likely be at that first level of morphology, just a bad architecture of the graft union. And I tell people when I teach grafting, if it doesn't look perfect, start again or throw it away because it, it it's it's not worth the investment of your time. Make it perfect, make it perfect, make it perfect. And the morph morphology is the big reason, the architecture of that graft union. Okay, so we make our cuts now. Does that does the cambium have a role to play here in in the way the cuts are made? Yeah, so the vascular cambium. So this is a in in a in a dicot stem. So in a typical fruit tree stem, this is a ring around the outside edge, and you can see it as kind of a green ring in cross section. And that green ring is going to generate phloem to one side, xylem to the inside, phloem to the outside. But that middle layer of cells is called vascular cambium. And this is what we refer to as pluripotent in the stem cell world. And I mean stem cell, not like the cells in a stem, the uh, <laughs> a cell that can have many, many outcomes, many fates. And that pluripotent cell layer that can differentiate into vascular tissue or, uh, or uh, meaning either xylem or phloem, or just uh, general cells in general, just like a generic cell type called callus, that cell line has to align. And if it does, it will use small molecules, maybe even direct contact to communicate with the cells on the other side of that graft union and say, hey, we're both here. We got to heal this thing. And that's where your healing will begin. Okay. So that so makes sense. So I can make two beautiful cuts, one in the rootstock and one in the scion. And if I don't quite line them up properly, then that's another problem that relates to morphology, I would think. Yes. Um, we, we've got another email. This one's from Janice. Hi, Susan P. Welcome back to the airwaves. Congrats on your 100th. Good topic today. Three of us are listening from Toronto, Ontario. Yay, Canadians. Wonderful. Okay. <laughs> Yay for my Canadians. All right, so now let's go on to point number two, which you enlightened me about in an earlier conversation. And point number two here is called cellular physiology. Wow, that's a mouthful. Um, and so that talks about what's happening at the cellular level during grafting in that graft union. Tell me about that. Yeah, so what is happening to the cell-on-cell -cell contact, that the cells come together across, the, across that union, and cells eventually do form um, a pipeline um, between uh, one cell to the other, one cell file to the next, where different molecules can flow from one set of cells to the other. And so what's happening at that level is really important. How do these cells contact each other? What's flowing through them to communicate from one side to the other? 
uh, what's going on with transmission of hormones or small molecules. All of these things are happening in that region and controlling how the cells are behaving. So how are cells on both sides of that union now responding to each other and helping to cellularize that graft union so that eventually vascularization can occur? Okay, so let's imagine there, let's say the rootstock has like a community of cells, a little community, little village of cells near the graft union, and the scion has a village of cells. And so are there certain cells that it's like, okay, boys and girls, this is our responsibility, we're going to do X. And the other cells will say, yeah, let's do, while they do that, we'll do something else. Like, is there that kind of interaction going on with those cells? Well, I think that's happening just in those cambium cells, just in the cells, which are the pluripotent cells, which now will give rise to the, or the vascular cambium, which will give rise to some of the other cell types in that region. And that will help to cellularize that joint. Okay. And so are the, like, we talk sometimes people say um, that the cambium layer is made up of cells. They, they turn into glue. It kind of glues the tree together. Um, and yet at the same time, there's other things happening because some of them are going to be xylem and phloem. So I read somewhere that some of the cells decide to be glue while others decide to be plumbing, right? So some of the cells will say, okay, I'm a cell, I'm a neutral, no name cell. And I think I'm going to be part of the glue community. So I'm going to stick these two <laughs> things together. And other cells will say, well, since, you know, Bob, Harry and Sally are becoming glue, why don't we be plumbers? And I'm going to connect this top tree to the bottom tree so that water and nutrients can go up. No, that's exactly right. There, there's, there's no utility in a graft union that doesn't have both. You have to have good physical structural elements that tie one the top to the bottom. And so during that cellularization phase where you have cells forming in that union, you also have lignification. So the process of the deposition of specific molecules, which will help fuse that connection and strengthen that connection between the bottom and the top. And then at the same time, you need to be able to, as you say, put in the plumbing. And that's a differentiation of xylem and phloem to connect both sides of the uh, of the pipe, for lack of a better, well, for an excellent term. Uh, that's perfect <laughs> to, term for me, yeah. I wouldn't say lack of, yeah, not lack <laughs> of a better term. Uh, to underscore an excellent analogy. Uh, you have um, the connection that can be made there by differentiating in that gap and then allowing that xylem to connect to xylem and phloem to phloem. So it's really remarkable when you think about it, because here just these generic cell types are able to identify where they need to go and what they need to turn into to fuse that connection. I think that's amazing. I mean, that just makes, that's just amazing to think about that. So, all right. So, so far we've talked about morphology and that's how good or bad my cut is. Then we talked about cellular physiology. We talked about the little communities of cells on both sides and whether they work together to maybe become glue, to maybe become plumbing, to lignify or harden, the all those things that they do. We've got a couple more points, but first we've got an email from Dave. Hello, Dave. Hi, Susan. Any contest today? Good luck with your new show ideas. Happy 100th. Does Kevin have a website? Thank you, Dave. Well, let's start at the end. Kevin, do you have a website? 
You know, that's a good point. Um, I just have a pro, I have my university website, which is at University of Florida. Um, I also have the Talking Biotech podcast where we where that website is is available. Um, also, uh, if you go to kevinfolta.com, uh, it's a lot of the work I do in strategic communication as well as uh, science, but uh, not a lot on there on grafting. Um, there are some grafting things out there that I've written um, here and there, and you can find those just by searching my name with the term grafting. And on your podcast, I know you've got a few interviews on grafting mm -hmm. because uh, I've got lined up. I'm going to be listening to those very soon. So, yes, Talking Biotech, right, is your podcast? That's right. Yeah. And I did okay. an interview with Dr. Charles Melnick a few years ago, and he's an expert on grafting and what happens at the level of the cell on either side of that union. And we had a really nice conversation. I look forward to listening to that one. That's going to be good. Your other question, any contest today? I'm sorry, today we do not have a contest. Sorry about that. But your prize is that we get to talk to Kevin. Yay. <laughs> so that's my prize. Okay. So thank you, Dave. Oh, we got a whole bunch of little questions here. Let's see what else we've got. Gloria. Hi, Garden Show. Is this discussion just for fruit trees or flowering plants Ooh. as well? That's a good question. I love it. Um, should I answer that? Yes, please. <laughs> There's been more and more interest in grafting um, non-woody species, especially in the area of horticultural crop plants. So I don't know about flowers. I'm sure it can be done, but uh, there have been tremendous benefits of things like watermelons, other cucurbits, uh, tomatoes, because rootstocks can impart really strong um, traits such as disease resistance to a shoot or to the scion. And in China, they graft by hand and by machine um, millions of tomatoes and watermelon plants. Uh, and here I've done it, I graft uh, tomatoes. And uh, you get some very nice traits from the roots, uh, which help with disease resistance and stature control. Well, I have a friend, John, who may be listening to the show, and he is famous for his grafted tomatoes that he grows. They go, they grow huge, very big. Okay, got a message here from Sammy. Sammy writes, hello, I have been doing grafting in my backyard for a number of years now. Every once in a while, I will read an article stating that a royalty should be paid for using some scion cuttings. Can you please clarify whether this is true? Love this topic of grafting. Thanks to you and the guest. Wow. Uh, uh, good question. No, absolutely. There are some materials which are still protected under plant variety protection and vegetatively propagated plants uh, that are uh, developed through private or public breeding programs do have patent protection. So you can't necessarily do your, you're, you're not supposed to do it for one at all. Um, and if you do decide to do it, a royalty should be paid to the patent holder. And that all has to be arranged before. Um, I've been interested in trying to propagate some rootstocks, things like that, which are under patent. And if I do that, I have to first let the uh, patent owner know, and then uh, pay them the royalty for doing it. And you know what? I think it's great investment to uh, to do that. I'm glad you brought up this question because plant variety improvement is an extremely expensive process and and we need to keep our breeders in mind if we propagate what their invention is. Well, so that's a great question because let's say my neighbor has a Macintosh apple tree. Am I being naughty if I snip off some branches and graft it onto something else? 
Uh, no, Macintosh is long expired in terms of its uh, in terms of its patent uh, protection, if there ever was. And so, what you just have to do is be cognizant of what the new varieties are when the patents expire. And you know, no one's going to get too upset if you do one for your neighbor or in your own in your own home. Um, you know, it still is breaking the law, but it's one of these things that's mostly made to deter widespread commercial propagation of something that has been protected that took a long time to develop. If there's any listeners as well who have fruit tree nurseries, we'd love to hear from you about your perspective on this, because you guys are growing all this scion wood, snipping it and making plants for us. And so maybe there's some feedback there. We've got an email here from Steve. Is this Susan Poisoner really? We missed you in your show. Oh my gosh. Sorry. <laughs> the, the imposter. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> actually, we when the, the months that we weren't able to be on Reality Radio 101, we actually went out live on YouTube. It was pretty hairy for me because I was doing the technical stuff. So yeah, anyways, thank you. I'm glad you noticed I was missing. Uh, so glad to have you back. Does Kevin have a book or videos to help us out on this? Thank you. <laughs> you know, it's uh, I don't, and I wish I did. And I need to develop the videos. I'm I'm working on this. Um, book wise, I've got so many irons in the fire; it's crazy. I, I I'm an active researcher. I'm an act. I, I farm with my wife. Uh, we are busy, busy, busy. But I would love to do it someday. So keep an eye out. Maybe one day I'll be able to do that. And if it is a specific grafting book that you are looking for, I just published Grow uh, Fruit Tree Grafting for Everyone. I'm super excited. There so check that out. You might be interested. Okay. Jolene writes, hi, love your show. Can you graft a zone, zone five apple varieties onto a zone four rootstock? Ooh, how cool. Yes, you can. Um, as long as they're species compatible, that's what matters. And this is what makes grafting so important. The traits of that rootstock can be transmitted to the scion and vice versa. So there are people who are committed just to develop new rootstocks that have enhanced disease and, and even precocity um, built into them and dwarfing, dwarfing qualities. Um, there's one that we're trialing for Apple, which gives us earliness potentially, which means that here in Florida, we may be able to grow more of the Northern varieties and still have good bud break and lots of them, even with less chilling. That would be pretty exciting. So basically it can, like it's, I guess it's not just the zone that's important. So it could be like a zone five cherry tree onto a zone four, I don't know, pear tree, right? That, yeah, that would could, be a little bit. You know bit, what I mean? That might little, be tricky. That's a taxonomical uh, um, bridge you may not be able to cross. <laughs> right. But in terms of if you know that the varieties are compatible, yes. then the zone, you know, there's some flexibility there. Yes. Good question. Uh, then we have this lovely email from Dawn. Hi, Susan. Great topic today. Congratulations on the new podcast name and your 100th episode. And that's from Dawn. Thank you, Dawn. Okay, it, let's do this. We've got two more big topics to talk about in terms of what makes a graft union successful and what doesn't. But let's take a little break and listen to some words from our sponsors. And then we'll come back after that and dive right back into the topic. Are you okay hanging on the line for a couple of minutes, Kevin? Of course.
Do you want to learn how to grow organic fruit trees quickly and successfully? I'm Susan Poisner from OrchardPeople.com and I teach online courses. Here's some feedback from one of my happy students. My name is Jennifer Chandler and I started growing fruit trees three years ago now. I would recommend Orchard People courses primarily because it is an excellent way to get up to speed fairly quickly and to build your confidence. There seem to be so many different theories of what to do and different recipes for this and that. One isn't overwhelmed by the advice in Orchard People. I just find it so much faster to get up to speed and build confidence than trying to piece it together surfing the web or at the library. Check out my courses at learn.orchardpeople.com. If you're listening to this show, you are passionate about fruit trees. But do you care how your trees are grown? Silver Creek Nursery is a family-owned business, and we grow our fruit trees sustainably using only organic inputs. We stock a huge range of cultivars, like Wolf River, an apple tree that produces fruit so large you can make an entire pie with just one apple. We also carry red-fleshed apples, like Pink Pearl, as well as heirloom and disease-resistant varieties of apples, pears, apricots, cherries, and more. We ship our trees across Canada, and we can also supply you with berry canes and edible companion plants to plant near your trees. At Silver Creek Nursery, we grow fruit trees for a sustainable food future. Learn more about us at silvercreeknursery.ca. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Wiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes over 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalog we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalog. That's 519-669-1349. Whiffle Tree Nursery. Call us today. Are you looking for a high-quality compost for your plants and fruit trees? Vermicomposting or worm composting may be the answer. It turns kitchen scraps and green waste into a rich, dark soil, rich in organic matter and in beneficial organisms. But making vermicompost at home can be messy and time-consuming. That's where Vermibec comes in. Vermibec produces 100,000 liters of high-quality, vermicompost annually, and it's perfect for those who want to skip the hassle of making it themselves. Vermibec sells to home growers and organic farmers across North America. So, give your plants the boost they need and try Vermibec's vermicompost today. 
Visit vermabec.ca to learn more. For 10% off, use the discount code COMPOST. You are listening to Orchard People, a radio show and podcast about fruit trees, food forests, and permaculture. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm your host, Susan Poisner, from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. Now, in the show today, we've been talking to Dr. Kevin Folta, Professor of Horticultural Sciences at the University of Florida, and our topic is fruit tree grafting compatibility and what happens at the graft union when you are merging two trees into one. So we are going to talk further about that in just a, mem- in just a minute, but first, I want to hear from you. Do you graft fruit trees? When do you find that your graphs are most effective and successful? What questions do you have about the science of grafting? If you're listening to the show live today, send us an email right now to instudio101 at gmail.com with a question, a comment, or just to say hello. And be sure to include your first name and where you are writing from. I look forward to hearing from you. So now back to Kevin. Kevin, we talked about morphology and how things fit together when you're grafting. We talked about the cells and what they're doing inside that graft union. I wanted to talk about hormones. How do plant hormones get involved in this whole activity of merging two trees into one? Well, plant hormones are so pivotal in every aspect of plant growth and development. And plants, hormones they really establish where a cell is, or well, a cell knows where it is by its hormonal environment and it knows its proximity to adjacent cells as well as to the top of the plant, to the bottom of the plant. It knows where it is in space, typically because of environmental signals, but the internal signal of plant hormones. And when you have a break, a wound in a a plant, such as those that may be incurred by your grafting knife, um, that those cells immediately say we've been wounded and hormones begin to accumulate that now will facilitate the cell division and the cell adhesion necessary to reestablish that graft union. And one of the big players is auxin. And people have heard about auxin. It's the one that controls uh, uh, bending towards light and, and suppression of apical bu- or of, uh, lateral axial buds um, and apical dominance, all that good stuff. Auxin seems to be a big player in the differentiation of or the um, uh, um, proliferation of cells and callus. So the generic cell type that we call callus that are just cells in that in that meristematic cambium that are like uh, just generic cells. They're looking for something to become, but they go to this generic cell type first. And it seems that in most cases, the graft is established as with what's called a callus bridge, that auxin gets these cells to divide and divide and divide and form that bridge between the two sides of that union. So I'm fascinated because from what I understand, those auxin hormones, they spend all their time at the tips of branches. They usually uh, help the branches become longer and longer. So let's say there is a break in the branch that we caused with our grafting knife. We cut the branch. How does how do the auxins get there to tell the cells, hey guys, let's get active. Can we heal this, please? Yeah, that's a great question. So auxins are produced apically. They're done at the apex of the plant in the apical meristem and then migrate, as we say in plant physiology, bicipitally. They move down the plant body. And so they move down the plant body. Now, if you move down the plant body, 
And all of a sudden you run into a cut where your vasculature doesn't go on anymore. Now you start to accumulate auxin in that spot. And that accumulation of auxin signals other things to happen inside those cells. Um, other genes associated with auxin um, transport, maybe lateral transport of auxin or uh, turnover of auxin, but also that um, accumulating auxin causes that development of callus. And, and that's really what we're exploiting here. So logically speaking, inside my head, I'm thinking, okay, uh, I'm grafting onto an existing tree in my backyard. I've cut off a branch so that I could graft onto it. I'm throwing away the auxins at the tip of the branch. So I've cut it off and I'm taking a piece from another tree and putting it there. How are the auxins going to get to where they need to go? No, that's a good question because yeah, you, if, you, if you don't use the tip, right? Well, well where, where do the auxins come from? There's auxins that are present inside the, inside that branch already and cells will make their own auxins. Um, things like plant hormones are really carefully controlled in terms of their levels. And if we think about it, they have mechanisms that turn on the production and also turn over the production. And uh, so it's kind of plant cells are stepping on the gas and the brakes at the same time. And so when uh, you have that break, maybe a, you have a, um, an injury, I should say. Now, all of a sudden you lift your foot off the brakes a little to accumulate more of the hormones that are going to be necessary for establishing that connection and healing that union. I love that image. That's an interesting idea. Um, okay, we've got an email here from Carrie. Hi, Susan. Fruit tree grafting is very interesting. My mother-in-law told me that it was very easy to do. My question, does it matter what type of fruit tree is grafted to the main tree? And please add me into the drawing if you were having one. Oops, no contest today. <laughs> Sorry, Carrie. And Carrie is from Oregon. Um, okay, so the question is, does it matter what type of fruit tree is grafted yeah. to the main tree? Yeah, yeah. So this goes back to that idea of um, what they call heterographs and, and how far can we move taxonomically away from each other before there's incompatibility. And there's no really good rules on this. I mentioned earlier, it's um, maybe apricot and almond can't, can't graft, but peach and plum can. And so those are interspecific, meaning two different species can graft together, but you can even do inter- generic grants, so uh, graphs. So um, in citrus, we do it all the time. Um, there's something called Punsiris. It's a, a very durable trifoliate orange that's used as a rootstock that we graft on regular citrus. And so here you're going not just different species, but different gen genera, and even some interfamily familial graphs have been done. Um, but it's all really dependent upon um, other factors as to whether that graft will be compatible. So um, what I would say to the listener is you got to give it a try. You got to give it a try. And report your results. <laughs> exactly. I always say that. You know, how many experiments can I do in my own backyard? I love hearing from other people. And also I've got, and at the end of the show, I'll mention there's a few other episodes that we talked about, for instance, multi-fruit uh, grafting, um, with uh, Javier Rivera was talking about that. We've got about four different podcasts on grafting. So you may find your answer in those other ones. Okay, so we talked about morphology. 
the pieces of the puzzle fitting together. We talked about cellular biophysiology, the little communities of cells who are gonna get and kick into action and become either glue or plumbing or whatever the, the, the union needs. We talked about hormones. The last thing that I have on my list here is molecular biology. Oh boy, yeah. what role does this play in grafting? Ah, yes. And, yeah, tell me about, well, what is it anyways? Well, molecular biology, that's what I do for a living. Uh, molecular biology is is really what's happening at the level of DNA and RNA, the nucleic acids that are the genes that are being expressed. And what you find in grafting is very interesting, that there's a whole series of uh, small RNAs. So going back to our central dogma of molecular biology, you have DNA in your cells as a master blueprint that makes this transient copy of certain genes which is reflected in what's called RNA. And RNA goes into the cell where it gets translated into proteins. So the information makes the proteins that are the enzymes and the structural elements of the cell. RNA is actually translocated through a graft union in many cases. And even as some believe, some have shown evidence that small RNAs, little pieces of RNA have a role in the healing of the graft union. So it's a messenger, a little signal that like a hormone is changing the way genes are expressed that will help heal that graft union. Molecular biology also plays a role in the genes that are associated with auxin and cytokinin synthesis. So plant hormones like auxin, cytokinin, maybe gibberellins to some extent, um, uh, ethylene, um, these are all playing a role in the cellular fate and differentiation of the cells in that graft union. Um, not only their proliferation to make generic cells, but also playing an important role in their final uh, differentiation into either plumbing or glue. So this is all happening at the level of the gene. That's what's controlling this ultimately. Okay. So here's where I'm totally confused because what I understand about grafting is the, the genetic identity of your rootstock is, stays the same and the top of the tree's genetic identity stays the same. So if I have a Macintosh apple tree on the top and it's grafted onto, let's say a golden delicious rootstock, that wouldn't really happen, but just to give it a name, right? So each of them stay what they are. They keep their own sort of DNA identity. So what you're saying is, well, there is a little bit of stuff bleeding from one into the other in, in terms of. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But, but that shouldn't surprise us because we buy rootstocks based on the traits they confer to the scion, right? So something has to be either moving through it or some sort of signal that gives the scion uh, enhanced ability. Or it could just be that there's a little bit of incompatibility there that's making the plant stress out. And when that little bit of stress is present, you don't have a problem as you're less susceptible to disease because stress-related genes may already be elevated in the scion. You know, now that you got a, uh, you know, it, it's if if you if you go outside and your shoes are too tight, it tends to affect many things you do throughout the day. <laughs> And, wow. and, and so it's, uh, it, it, it's kind of how that, that, that scion may be reacting to a slightly incompatible, uh, incompatible rootstock. Okay, so now we have a bit of a broader understanding of what's happening in the graft union, whether these combinations will work, whether it's apple to apple, whether it's plum to apricot, um, you know, there's, there are, there are also, for instance, cherry, cherry trees, 
and that's a stone fruit. And I understand that a lot of stone fruits are similar in character, but cherries don't seem to graft very well onto plums or apricots. That just doesn't happen. So why would that be a problem? Yeah, it's prunus to prunus crime, isn't it? Yeah, so it, it's probably because of there's enough genetic distance, even though they're similar at the level of the gene, that metabolically there's some differences. And this is a big one that I mentioned in the beginning, that there are a number of secondary metabolites. So these are just chemicals that the plants make that tend to uh, coalesce at these wounds and that those wounds can play a role in, or those compounds, presence of those compounds can play a role in that incompatibility. And that's been studied in a lot of uh, graft unions, both newly established as well as um, maybe maybe longer term uh, graft unions that fail. You know, they can fail after 15 years. Uh, so what was present that caused it to stop working? And it turns out it's usually the presence of these secondary metabolites. Hmm. Okay, well, here's another question. Some people have reported that stone fruits do not take as well when you do them in spring grafting versus summer budding. They work better with budding. Yes. So if you're doing uh, peaches, most times fruit tree nurseries will bud them in the summer rather than graft them in the spring. Why would that be? Whereas yeah. apple trees, for instance, are great if you do them both in the spring and in the summer. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, uh, so the the main reason that at least down in my neck of the woods where we do bud grafting, shield grafts, those kinds of things, is because of disease transmission. And down here where xylella is endemic, where you have lots of other diseases that are present, they're not as uh, likely to transmit when you transmit them with. Um, buds because they haven't developed a full vasculature for uh, bud for disease to move within the vascular tissue. So the young developing bud, when that's grafted, is less likely to cause problems going forward. Interesting. So when you obviously in the spring we're using a piece of a branch, it's a little, it's older than a bud. It's stuff has happened. It may have sucked in some of the disease that's in the tree. So in the summer, when we're budding with a teeny tiny little bud from our, you know, the plant that we want to propagate, it's so young that hopefully it hasn't taken in those diseases. So that's the reason people prefer to, to do stone fruits budding in the summer rather than the spring. Okay, that makes sense. Um, now I got a question and I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of this, uh, this listener would warmer climate chestnut cultivars that are resistant to blight be successfully grown in cold areas if they were grafted onto a tree with more resilience in colder areas like oak and beech. So I guess here, the question is, could you, could, in terms of nut trees or native trees or whatever, can you graft chestnut onto Ochre Beach? No, that would not be a compatible, not likely be compatible. I've never tried it, so I can't say. Um, not likely be compatible. It, it is interesting that you could use some of the um, potentially resistant um, chestnut types. If the American chestnut is still there uh, in many of the forests, although not growing well because of blight. And uh, if those rootstock or if the roots are still present and you do see shoots of them coming up here and there, uh, from what I understand, that that could certainly be grafted onto. But I think the idea of uh, repatriating Appalachia uh, by grafting, it might be a far flung idea. <laughs> right. OK, so yeah. I love it. 
<laughs> yeah, it would be great if it worked for sure. If you had that flexibility, I've got, there was also a discussion on Facebook here. And so I got some interesting questions. One was from Paul in Michigan. I'm curious about grafting pear onto quince. Yeah, yeah. Only yeah. some pear cultivars are compatible. So what's going on there? Yeah, that's another example where quince can can provide a very strong dwarfing effect onto different pear cultivars. And but again, it's cultivar specific, and it has to do more again with taxonomic dif distance. I think if you were to look at the genetic sequences of the ones that worked and the ones that didn't, or metabolic profiles, you'd find that they grouped up very nicely. That there is, you know, just and and this is why grafting is so cool. It's only recently been. Um, available to our modern molecular tools. I mean, everybody's been studying other stuff and now looking at what's happening on either side of that union is becoming possible because we can say what's happening in a single cell. You know, we can look at that now. It wasn't possible before. So yeah, that's a great question. Quince is a is a is a, allegedly a very good rootstock for certain kinds of pears. And and again, like it's kind of makes you like when we think of pear cultivars, we think, well, they're all pears. And what you're saying is like whether it's a Bosque pear or another variety, it could be on a genetic level or a DNA level, maybe very different. Am I right? Is it the well, DNA I, level that would I, be different that might not be compatible with the quince? My, my guess is, is that it would be that the DNA sequences are very similar. If you look across the rosaceous crops, such quince and pear are both rosaceous crops and relatively close together taxonomically, they're very similar at the DNA level, but something is not allowing those cells to shake hands or is allowing in some, not allowing in others. And it uh, very likely is that, it, my guess is, is that it has the ability to form that union because of its similarity, but doesn't form it because of some secondary metabolite or some secondary difference that doesn't allow that to occur. So something that's present in, in either the pear or the quince that, that disallows that formation to occur. And so I think scientists like you over, you know, in the next two, three years, you guys may have answers for us on this. You may have specific answers because now you're able to check and research it. Yeah, there's some great people on this. Charles Melnick, who I mentioned before, Dr. Melnick's doing great work in Sweden. Um, Margaret Frank at Cornell. There's some Dr. Margaret Frank. Um, there's so many people doing beautiful work around the cells of that union, and we're learning all the time. And I, I'm I'm interested in it, but I'm not doing the research because smarter people are doing it, and I can just, <laughs> I'll just read what they write. That sounds good. Okay, we've got something here from Adam from Michigan writes. I grafted the super fin European pear variety onto a rootstock called OHXF87. Not a very fancy name, but anyways. <laughs> and it began to throw root suckers. So it started to grow root suckers. So he says it wasn't really successful. But when I took a cutting from that super fin European pear and then grafted it onto a different rootstock, OHXF333, it grew just fine. Later, he told me actually that um, the the original one, the one that suckered, did survive at least for a while. But he felt that the fact that it suckered so much meant it wasn't a success, successful graph. Hmm. So, what do you think? What did the what did the fact that your rootstock starts to send up a lot of alternative shoots instead of putting its energy into the graft? What does that mean to you? 
Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I'm not that familiar with the OHXF suckering habits of all the individual ones because there's many different ones. And some rootstocks are just more prone to suckering uh, irrespective of the grant that, uh, the graft that's applied. So um, I would hate to give you bad guidance there. Uh, I don't know that it means your graft failed. Um, M111 is a popular apple rootstock that makes suckers all day. And you got to keep cutting those suckers off. Um, we see it with Ponsiris and Citrus. You know, they always are making more uh, from the base. Um, it's more important to manage those suckers because they're taking away potential of the scion. And uh, even in some cases, like with persimmons, I've seen people who had persimmons trees and some peach trees where the rootstock actually outgrew the scion and uh, ended up uh, providing some false hope that their tree was doing extremely well. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, so the suckering itself doesn't mean that it was necessarily a problem. It's good to know. Okay. I think we've got time for one more uh, comment here. This is from Javier in Florida. And Javier is talking about his favorite combinations. My favorite combinations to graft are apples to G890 90. rootstock. Okay. So um, Javier's in Florida. I like grafting ornamental cherries and stone fruit scions onto Mariana 2624 through interstems. And we talk about this in, in Javier's program, a lot about interstems, but we, we can mention it now. What hasn't worked well for me in the past is any peach or nectarine grafted onto citation rootstock, as they don't seem to survive past one year in my area, even though I give them good soil and good drainage. So what, you know, what, what could be the problem here? And I think this is a perfect example of what we talked about in the beginning of the show. Grafting is in a way, it seems complicated. It's a simple art. It really is learning to make some basic cuts, learning the science behind it. But some combinations just don't want to cooperate or, or shake hands. So any comments on, on that? Well, it's a little bit tough. I know Javier. Um, yeah. Uh, citation, you know, that's the problem is citation is a California rootstock for stone fruits. Florida is extremely fickle with respect to rootstock compatibility with the soil. So it doesn't matter what you stick on top. Um, the uh, peach rootstocks don't do well here at all. Uh, Nema Guard was developed in Florida for Florida. That one's kind of waning. FloraGuard does very well with the nematodes and other disease pressures and the sandy, rotten soil. Um, really, it's so important to, in the grafting process to make sure that the uh, the roots that you choose are going to be compatible with the soil it's going to be in. And so I don't know, Citation, you know, Javier has played with that one a bunch, but uh, I, I'm not too sure about that, how that one performs here. Interesting. So, so you're bringing in one at the end of the show, but that's one extra piece of the puzzle is it matters where you live, right? You can have the best combination of, you know, whether it's citation rootstock and, you know, a peach and nectarine, and it works perfectly in California. Guess what doesn't work in Florida? Mm -hmm. The climate's different. The conditions are different. So like I said, it's a beautiful science grafting. It's actually a simple science when when you start to play with it. Um, and yet you can go into a very deep rabbit hole <laughs> and, uh, you know, encounter some issues. But that's the fun, isn't it? I mean, do you enjoy grafting, Kevin? Is it is it something that you like doing? Yeah, I, I, I do thousands of them a, a year. I can count to nine 
with how many I <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 I love grafting. It's so much fun. It's fun seeing the different combinations you can do. I can grow all kinds of fun mulberries on my property because I have a native rootstock that I can graft to. There's so many fun things you can do once you start understanding what works in your place and what you can graft onto it. Wow. Native roots. So what's the native rootstock? So you have a native mulberry that's growing naturally on your property and then you're taking scions from really yummy varieties and popping them on something that's already in the ground in your backyard that's right and it gives them good vigor and it makes them grow oh. so much faster than if they're on if they're on their native roots because things like nematodes just feast on mulberries but they don't touch the native ones so it gives me the opportunity to grow something nobody else has how fun that is so fun okay that is so great now, we're going to wrap up the show in a minute. First, I want to remind everybody, if you are interested in this topic, there are other episodes that you will love. Uh, and you'll find all these other episodes at podcast.orchardpeople.com. So episode 65 is about the tree of 40 fruits. And my guest was Sam Van Aken, the artist that makes these incredible trees. Episode 77 is about fruit tree grafting for beginners with Steph Roth of Silver Creek Nursery. Episode 91 is about multi-fruit trees, and we talk there about interstem grafting. And Javier Rivera was my interviewee there. And then finally, episode 88 is about apple rootstocks. It's explaining more about apple rootstocks. That was fascinating with John Strain. So you guys can find those episodes at podcast.orchardpeople.com. And if you're interested in my new book, you can go to Amazon and look for fruit tree grafting for everyone. And I will teach you how to graft your own fruit trees with help from an expert. So anyways, I hope you guys love the book. So thank you so much, Kevin, for coming on the show today. It is always so fun to have you on. And we really appreciate you spending the time to explain things to us. Oh, anytime. I love the topic. So thank you for doing what you do. So that was fun. Thank you to Kevin for coming on the show. And for the rest of the listeners, why don't you head over to the Orchard People YouTube channel later? You're going to be able to see the video of this podcast, or you can go to Apple Podcasts or your local podcatcher and subscribe to the Orchard People podcast. Finally, if you want to get emails from me about upcoming shows, go to orchardpeople.com slash sign dash up. And you can sign up and I'll give you notices about upcoming topics for our shows, articles. And if I ever have to disappear from the air on Reality Radio 101, again, you'll find out where to where to listen to the live show or tune to it. But that's all for now, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you're going to join me again next month when we're going to dig into another great topic. See you then. Bye for now. <laughs>